So as our custom, we'll stand and read. We'll stand and read uh, 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 6. 1 to 5, I should say. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's pray. Lord, we look forward to our time together in your word. And as we embark on a new book and a new series, I ask that your spirit would go before us. Uh, There are some interesting issues that arise in Timothy, some complex things, things that have divided denominations and and, uh, divided Christians in terms of how they structure church life. And uh, they're pretty important issues then, Lord, because people interpret this book very differently. I pray, God, that as we go through it, that we'd all be open to understanding the truth that was, as was pertained in the first century, that if we have any misguidings, that you would uh, correct them as we go along over the next six months. Uh, we, we know that we are prone to error, and we, um, but at the same time, we know that your Spirit can reveal truth to us in a way we haven't seen before. So we look to you to be the, the guiding light in our time together. Um, yeah, and just have our and may our church be merciful and graceful to one another in discussion, because many topics within this book too are uh, we already have our set opinions on and set beliefs. Some will be true, and in accordance with what Paul originally intended, some things that will be wrong. And I just pray that uh, we handle each other with gentleness when we go to discuss these matters. And that goes for myself included, and uh, we look forward to our time together now. Amen. Well, good morning, and welcome again as we begin a new sermon series in the letter of Timothy. In my studies this week, I was reminded of how important this letter is going to be for us. Uh, We've covered a lot of different subject matter over seven years here, and explored different categories of life. And what I love about this book is it's going to make us review some of the areas that we're already familiar with as a church and had open discussion about, but we're also going to be exploring new territory, uh, categories of life and theology and ethics that are new to us and are going to challenge us to think about how we live out this Christian life. Now, our custom before jumping straight into any opening chapter and verse in the new book is to give an overview of the letter. So you get an idea of the themes that exist and the purpose for why it was written. And so once we establish this context, uh, then it's easier for us to apply it to ourselves in Okotoks. We've got to go back to Ephesus before we can go here. So that's what we're going to do today, and we're going to discuss uh, some aspects of the letter as an overview. So first of all, who wrote it? Answer is given very clearly to us in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Now, there's lots of things you could say about Paul. <clears throat> you could do multiple sermons on his life alone. But I want you to notice one major thing as he, indre- as he addresses himself as, an author, as the author of the letter here. 
Notice that right off the hop, he appeals to his authority as an apostle. He says, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now, this is an important observation, because whenever you see that Paul referencing himself as an apostle early on in a letter, it gives you a sense of what Paul's letter is going to include. See, you see, not every letter in the New Testament written by Paul begins with him mentioning his apostleship. There are letters where he doesn't mention that at all. I'll give you an example. The men did a book study on Philippians. In the introduction of Philippians, he says this, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. And the reason he did this in this letter was because Philippians was more of a friendship letter designed to uh, encourage and show gratitude for the relationship he had. But when Paul ever uses the apostleship title in his opening letters, you know he's going to correct problems. He appeals to it as authority whenever he's going to correct problems, which in Ephesus there are quite a few. And this is where Timothy was stationed by Paul. So by beginning his letter with a reminder of his authority in Christ, it was a way of strengthening Timothy's hand when he was going to speak to the house churches in Ephesus. Because they might just say, well, why should I listen to you, Timothy? And he says, well, because the apostle, Paul, has something to say to you. So who was it written to? Well, I've already referenced Timothy and referenced the Ephesian church. Those are the two people it was written to. Um, Paul, sorry, Timothy would be the primary recipient, and the Ephesian church would be the secondary recipient. Look at verse 2. He says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Timothy was the recipient of the letter, but in verses 3, in verse 3, we see here that upon Paul's departure from Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, he leaves Timothy in Ephesus. He leaves him there. And the intention is the secondary recipients of the letter were going to be the believers within the house churches of Ephesus. So he writes the letter to Timothy with the idea that, he, that the Ephesians are going to hear the, the letter as well. Gordon Fee words, words it this way. He says, The letter fluctuates between words to the church through Timothy and words to Timothy himself. Although even the words to Timothy are intended to be overheard by the church. So that's a good way of understanding the letter. When was it written? Well, there's no like landmarks in the letter per se that give like absolute clarity, but uh, you can do your own study on this and to double check my work. But from everything I could gather from my own studies, my other sources that I read to put things together and other letters in the New Testament, it was probably written somewhere in the neighborhood of 62 to 63 AD. That's 30 years after the crucifixion of Christ, only 30 years. And so we've already seen, we see already problems in a church 30 years after the, 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 the um, crucifixion and resurrection. You can see why now we're 2,000 years removed. How come this can still be an issue today? It doesn't take long to go sideways in, in issues in church life. So before we get into the big question, why was it written? And look at the themes within the letter. Uh, we're going to spend some time talking about both the recipients of the letter. Who was Timothy and who were the Ephesians to Paul? Let's talk about Timothy first. The first thing we learned about Timothy is found in Acts 16. In Acts 16, and I encourage you to go to Acts 16 in your own time later on this week and look at, this, uh, look at that chapter. But you, you can see here that Timothy is from Lystra. 
from Lystra. Now let me give you an understanding of what that looks like on the map. Um, obviously you see the Mediterranean Sea. You can see Jerusalem in the bottom right-hand corner in modern-day Israel. And you can see Antioch straight north. And then you go to the left and you see Lystra above the island of Cyprus. Now Lystra, Iconium, Perga, Antioch, if you were to live in today's world, those places are in modern-day Turkey. And, and modern-day Turkey. And that is um, where you can find uh, Lystra. And Lystra was where um, Timothy was from. Now, what's cool about this place is that uh, when Timothy grew up there, he came from a mixed heritage. He had a mixed parents. His dad was Greek, and his mother was Jewish. Now, the New Testament mentions nothing of his father and the influence he was in his life. But the New Testament speaks highly of his mother and his grandmother, and especially in regards to his spiritual maturity and development. In 2 Timothy 1.5, we learned that his mother's name was Eunice and grandmother's name was Lois. Both of them are defined there as believers in Jesus Christ. They never, the New Testament, though, never tells us when they came to, to know Christ, but I have a suggestion based on reading the book of Acts. You see, we know Paul did four missionary journeys, and on his first missionary journey, he ended up in Acts 14 visiting Lystra. And when you read the account of what happened there, his spreading of the gospel had an incredible effect on in the city. And many people there placed their faith in Christ in his first missionary journey. So I would suggest that perhaps his grandmother and mother learned about Jesus uh, on his, Paul's first missionary journey, um, and so on. And we know that these two women had a major impact on Timothy's spiritual formation. And I want you to just uh, listen to this as I read this to you. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to the description here of Paul writing to Timothy. For I, Paul, am remind, are mindful of a sincere faith within you, which was first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. So again, the kind of faith that Timothy has, he understands, is the same kind of faith as in his grandparents, or his grandmother and his mother. 2 Timothy uh, 3 is really interesting too. In verse 14, you know, there's some false teachers in the church and they've got certain characteristics and he wants to encourage Timothy not to go down their path. He says in 14, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from where you have learned them. Grandma, <laughs> mom, right? Now watch this. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. And then the most famous verse in the Bible, one of them, besides, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, you know, John 3.16, uh, this one, uh, all scriptures inspired by God are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Now what's cool about this first church is this, the sacred writings that Paul's talking about is not the New Testament. It doesn't exist. The sacred writings that are able to impart life to, and, and lead you to salvation in Jesus Christ are the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures. So, Grandma and Mom had taught Timothy since a little boy the Old Testament scriptures. So when Paul shows up and they hear the gospel, everything makes total sense. They've, they've got this, this whole package put together. So Timothy, from a little boy, had been immersed in the scriptures. Pretty, pretty cool spiritual foundation. Let me give a shout out to you parents here now. 
Please give your children the legacy of Timothy. Impart the scriptures to your children at a very young age because it was because of this foundation that Paul was able to pick up Timothy and take him on a missionary journey. The man, through his spiritual formation, was trained by mom and grandma so that when he was ready, he was mature enough and understood enough and useful enough to, to Paul to be able to take him out and, and do God's work. We have a tendency to be lazy in these areas, and I get it. I have the same tendencies myself. But may this be a, uh, a reminder to us of the importance of this. So Paul found Timothy on his, on list, uh, on his return to Lystra in the second missionary journey. That's when he picked them up a few years later. And his reputation had grown. In Acts 16.2, it says there that he was well spoken of by the brethren in Lystra and Iconium. And if you look at the map, Lystra's in the south, Iconium's uh, a bit north. So I kind of picture this as Okotoks and Black Diamond. It's kind of like two neighboring communities. But we can see that Paul, uh, Timothy has got a reputation beyond his own hometown. However, the, the, the believers intermingled in those days. Uh, Iconium knows of his reputation. So he's, a, he's, a, he's become important in terms of a spiritual um, a giant, not just in his own town, but another town north of him as well. So upon his arrival then, when Timothy picks up, or Paul picks up Timothy, he recognizes what a tremendous benefit this guy is in partnering to further the gospel. He had a huge understanding of the scriptures. He's got a huge reputation already in his own area. And so he accompanies Paul for about 20 years in ministry service. But I want to talk about one other piece of Timothy that makes him so useful to ministry. That was his mixed heritage. You see, he had a father that was Greek and a mother that was Jewish. That might not seem like much to us, but that's a major asset when you think about their context. If, you're, if you lived in Okotoks and I had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, that doesn't change anything in the way I do ministry in Okotoks. It means virtually nothing. How many Greeks and Jews do you know that live here in terms of like huge quantities? I mean, hardly any. But when you look at um, his context, it was everything. It was everything. You see, Paul's major, uh, Paul's first move in every city he went into to evangelize was go to the synagogue. First move every time, synagogue. He's a minister to the Gentiles, according to Acts, but the first place he went was the synagogue to his own people. And after he would get thrown out the window of the synagogue, he'd then go to the Gentiles and speak to them. So, as a Timothy being Jewish, can enter the synagogue. He understands uh, Jewish theology. He's trained in the Old Testament scriptures. He knows the culture, the practices. He's Jewish, according to the Jews, and so they recognize him and accept him. But he's also Gentile. He's also Gentile. He knows the culture, the practices, and the customs, and the issues of the Gentile world. So he can also go into their territory and uh, understand the issues going on there as well. So P Timothy was a fantastic a partner in gospel work because he was a great evangelist because he understood both cultures and Paul understood that he could, he could access different places quite easy and the people could relate to him. And so he became Paul's right-hand man and the most useful in Paul's life. And Paul loved him. He entrusted him to visit three churches that he established. He sent him to Corinth. He sent him to Thessalonica and Philippi by himself about Paul. He also collaborated on six of Paul's letters in the New Testament that he wrote. 
But probably the most significant statements about the love for Timothy are found in 1 Corinthians 4 and Philippians 2. In Philippians 4, listen to this comment. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 4. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of the way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the church. Listen to this. Paul says to the Corinthians, you want, I want you to imitate me. It's a pretty bold statement. You know, in terms of living out the Christian life, you can copy me. But there's someone else you can copy too. I'm going to send you Timothy, who's just like me. And you can listen to him and be confident in him, just as you are confident in me. That's an incredible statement for Paul to make about Timothy. Look at Philippians 2, 19 to 23. I hope when the Lord Jesus has sent Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks up for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him soon as I, as I see how things go with me. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Timothy was basically Paul's right-hand man, and he loved him. It's no wonder in 1 Timothy chapter 2, sorry, chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1 verse 2, he says this, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and mercy. How about Ephesus? Well, Ephesus is located in modern-day Turkey as well. Ephesus is not on this map, but if you go, if you, if you find Perga and Pisidia and Antioch, which are the, the farthest cities on the left-hand side of the map, and you go right to the border where the water is, where all those little islands are, are on the left-hand side, Ephesus is centered on the coast there. So Ephesus is still in Turkey, but it's to the, to the west of those cities. Ephesus was the church plant that Paul dedicated most of his life to. According to Acts 20, verse 30, he spent three years there. The next closest, I think, was Corinth at one and a half years. So he doubled his time in Ephesus more than any other church plant. And he made a huge investment in discipleship there. In Acts 20, 20, it says that Paul taught publicly and from house to house. So he was invested in, in establishing these churches. He even opened up a modern-day Bible college in Acts 19.9, the school of Tyrannus. And for a period of two years, he met daily teaching new converts how to live out the Christian life. And Ephesus was no stranger to miracles and the supernatural. Many people there had experienced God's healing power firsthand. You remember the story that um, some of the, the Christians there, after they were saved, they, they carried Paul's articles of clothing, like his handkerchiefs and aprons, so that anyone who just touched those things would be healed. So it was an incredible place, incredible uh, growth that happened there in the early years. But I want to leave you with one interesting fact before we get into the why of the letter. And I think it's going to be extremely relevant, church, as we study these issues in this letter. Did you know that the chief deity of the city of Ephesus and Asia Minor, which is Turkey, that everyone worshipped back then was a female goddess, a female god. 
So a lot of the obviously a lot of the gods in the in the Greco-Roman culture were male, you know, Zeus and Hercules and things like that. Um, this was a female goddess named Artemis, and a massive temple was built in Ephesus where everyone would visit there to pay homage to her. Now, why I think this is significant is this: you often hear this. Well, in those days, the Bible—it's all matriarchal society. It's a matriarchal society. Women didn't have any importance, and blah 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 blah. Yeah, that's true in some places, in certain contexts. Not in Ephesus. The chief goddess is a woman. In Timothy, the, every, almost every chapter deals with, deals with women's roles and who women are in family and in church. Do you think that there's a link there? The chief goddess is a female, and there's no other book in the Bible with more women's issues than Timothy. And it's important, I think, this is, I don't know how this is all going to fit together and play together as we study, but I, I, I bet you we're going to come back to this as we, as we study this letter together. But again, he's helping, uh, in, in the letter we see instruction to widows who are older, instruction to widows who are younger, uh, what God, the desire is for women in terms of leadership, uh, in terms of family, and all sorts of different things going on. And he has a lot of instruction to men, too, in response to what's happening with the women in that culture. We can actually see... Uh, um, yeah, so I think this is going to be significant as we go on. So Ephesus is a real model church. I mean, evangelistically, they've, they've exploded. Lots of good things happening there. And that's why the letter is so startling. Because it leads to the last question, why was it written? Why was it written? In chapter 3, verse 14, it seems like it's clear. He says this, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and support of the truth. So when you read that, it's clear. I'm writing that you know how to properly conduct yourself in the household of God. Crystal clear, is it? <laughs> it's very interesting. Commentators and different pastors are divided on this. Those who think that it's crystal clear think that this book is strictly about, is like a church manual. It's a letter on how to get order in your churches. So just like when you buy a new iPhone and you don't know how to use it and you pull out the manual and it gives you instructions, they think that 1 Timothy is a letter about how to function properly in your church. But I'm going to suggest this is, this is not the original intent of the letter. If you put a magnifying glass over the entire letter, you're going to see a bigger picture. Now the reason why it's out of order and there's misconduct that needs to be put in order is because of something bigger going on. It's the cause of the disorder that Paul's actually writing a letter about. It's the presence of false teachers leading the church astray. And so Paul writes a letter for, them, for Timothy to deal with them and the effects they're having on the church. They're putting the church into a tailspin, and so he wants to get, the, to correct the, the, get rid of the false teachers so that the church can then be put it back into order. Where do I get this from? Right in the opening chapter. Look at verses, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculations. Look at verse 18. 
This commandment I trusted to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I've handed over to Satan, so they will be taught not to blaspheme. These are two leading men in the church that Paul has to excommunicate. Right in the opening chapter, we see the reason for his uh, being left in Ephesus to deal with the false teachers who put the church, church into a tailspin. And they need to be reconstituted in the truths of the gospel and how to live it out. Now what's key about this is that Paul had warned the Ephesian church this was going to happen years earlier. He had predicted this. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to a shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That's pretty powerful. Years before, he predicted this, and sure enough, they showed up. But I want to show you something significant, because you might think, well, Andrew, like, we've already talked about false teachers extensively. I mean, in 2019, he dedicated 1 Peter and 2 Peter to false teachers, and why are we doing it again? Different issues going on, church, in this, the Timothy and Ephesus than they were back in the churches in Bithynia and so on. Different issues, different origins of teachers, too. Did you catch it? In 1 Peter, the false teachers were from outside the church. Here, they're primarily from inside the church. They were raised within the community. Look at the second, the last, uh, the last three lines. Some will come in among you, not sparing the flock, from, and from among your own selves, men will arise. Men will arise. This is significant, church, because this is a church that started off so well, so well and then just went completely sideways. How many churches do we know that start off with strong teachers, strong leadership, strong gospel message, and slowly over time, we go, what happened? What happened? I can't go there anymore. I used to, that was my home church. I loved it. Something happened. These men and these women were so strong in the Lord, and they've gone sideways. Like, we don't get it. First Timothy has something to say to us about this. And he says, you know what? Here's what's powerful about this. This is Paul's church. He established this house church. He did. If a house church that Paul establishes goes sideways, how easy it is for Genesis house to go sideways if we're not careful. I'm not joking about this. I'm not trying to like, you know, I, I realize the, 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 the rub here. But if you heard the Apostle Paul was coming to town to church plant, I bet you over the course of a year, all of you would be gone and I'd be out of a job. Because you have a chance to learn from him, or you have a chance to learn from me. You have a chance to disciple from him, you have a chance to disciple by, by me. You would go to Paul's house church, I guarantee it. In fact, I probably would too. I'd, I'd probably be the first one to quit and say, I'm going to Paul's church, you want to come with me? And maybe he'd give me a job like, uh, like Timothy or something like that. But you get the point? And then he leaves, and then we all go sideways. I mean, this is how relative it is for Genesis House. Okay, so what are the book level themes? We're going to conclude with, with these points. What are the book level themes? Number one, concern over apostasy. Concern for apostasy. 
Let me define apostasy for you. There's some confusion. Apostasy, a lot of people think, well, apostasy is just someone who's, a, who's, who's an unbeliever, who's like a heretic, who just sort of preaches false truth. So, Joel Wilstein, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins, like these kind of guys, like they're, you know, any of these guys, they're kind of like, they're, they're, they're apostates because they, they, they're unbelievers and they speak untruths. That's not what apostate is. Apostate means this, you, wealth, you once held an original position and you turned from that position. You had turned from that position. So this is referring to people who have walked away from faith in Christ. Apostasy. Listen to the theme. It's a book level theme. Look at, look at these verses. 1-6. Some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. One nineteen. Some have rejected and suffered shipwreck with regards to their faith. 4-1. Some will fall away from their faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. 5-15. Some have already turned aside to follow Satan. 6.10, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And 6.21, some have professed and gone astray from their faith. The, to, say that the, 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 to say that the book is about needing to rest, restore church order is to miss the mark of the, of the book. These are, this is a book-wide theme. And again, I've already talked about this, but really important. If this was a, a reality for Paul and the churches that he planted, Planted, then we have to be concerned about this and ours. And despite all the technical, technological advances we've made in being able to grow in our knowledge of Christ and spread the gospel, like the internet, podcasts, emails, it's not a proven antidote to spiritual collapse. It can help into anyone without strong leadership. And if the leadership goes astray. Second book level theme. A, cons- a concern for qualified leadership, both in doctrine and character. Both for doctrine and clar- character. There's an emphasis in this book about speaking truth and declaring truth. Chapters 1, verses 3 to 7, 4, 1 to 3, 4, 13, 6, 3 to 5. I'll let you look at those later. I'm not going to go through them all. But we're going to discuss them verse by verse as we go along. It's a focus on speaking truth, getting your doctrine right. And then a huge emphasis on character. All of chapter 3 dedicated to the character of leadership. Now what's cool about these, this leadership stuff, we've been discovering this in our men's studies. The emphasis in Ephesus on the spiritual leadership of the church is not on duty. It's not, you need to be doing this, and you need to be doing that, and this is your role. The only duty is being able to teach the Word of God. That's the only one. Everything else is character-based. I mean, just, just quickly turn with me to chapter 3, verse 1. Look at this. Verse 2, I should say. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, that's the only duty, not addicted to wine, not violent, but gentle, peaceable, and so on. Those are character traits. They're not duties. They're not duties. Now, you're going to learn this, the reason why is the false teachers did not possess these traits. They weren't peaceable. They weren't, um, they weren't uh, you know, uh, free from dissension and gentle in spirit. They loved to cause dissension amongst the church community and so on and so forth. And so there's a focus. And of course, their doctrines all over the place. I mean, verse 4 reveals that. Don't want to pay attention to their myths and endless genealogies, which give me rise to speculation and so on and so forth. We're going to discuss what their teaching would have looked like, maybe what their, what their basis of their, their, their thoughts might have been.
One, another, uh, another concern within the book level themes is the order in worship. Order in worship. Paul speaks about the necessity of how, how, uh, what prayer looks like in church, what dress code looks like in church, and, and who's, to be, who's to be teaching within church. And that, the whole chapter 2 is dedicated to this. Now, um, yeah, I mean, these are the, the, the one that people get really hung up on is, of course, is who is to teach, chapter 2. Are, are, you know, are females allowed to exercise an authority over a man? Can they be elders in churches? Can they be pastors and so on? And we're going to have to deal with all that stuff. And I know all of you already have a preset thought and opinion on that subject matter. But uh, we're going to be having to deal with that. So there's order in worship, again, because the false teachers are creating, obviously, disorder in worship. So if you attended an Ephesian church service, it wouldn't look like Genesis House. It'd be a lot more chaotic, and it'd be very interesting to see what it would have been like in those days. We're going to try to put together a picture of what that would have looked like. Another one um, was a concern for materialism. The false teachers were clearly motivated by greed. It tells us in Timothy that that was their number one issue. They were in it for the money. In it for the money. I'd be just curious how much they got paid. Uh, they're in it for the money. What a good salary was in the Ephesian times. So there's no way of, of knowing those things. But that's why Paul then has to speak to the church, Christians, about contentment. And where to put their hope. And, how to, and, and, and that the idea that it's okay to be rich. And, and, and that, but you have to be generous with, what you're, uh, with your riches and so on and so forth. So again... I don't have to talk to you about this. I mean, Okotoks, one of the most wealthy cities in Canada. Every time I do my research, just for, like, I do it once in a while, I just look up you know, stats and where we sort of like Alberta fits, Okotoks fits in the, in the nation. We are top, we're top dog, we're right up there. Materialism, very important conversation for our church here today. No one really picked up on this uh, in the commentaries, but uh, Dan and I have talked about this. We think this is a major book-level theme, a concern for family, concern for the family unit. Along with Titus, there's no greater New Testament book on the importance of the structure, roles, and function within the family unit. There's an emphasis on men being able to provide for their families and be workers that way, an emphasis on women raising children and being workers at home. There's an emphasis on marriage. Why was that? You know what's interesting? In chapter 4, verse 3, the false teachers were forbidding marriage. Forbidding it. Now I think, I, I, I'm going to have to, I'll be careful how much I say here, but I think from what I've heard from other, um, one of my university professors, he talked about that he... He was teaching us that uh, the, the female god, Artemis, it was uh, one of her chief characteristics was, to, was if, to honor her was to stay single. Okay? Singleness for the sake of worship of her. I'll have to double check my work when we get to her later on. But if that's the case, you can see why forbidding a marriage is so popular. I don't have to tell you how important this is for our culture. The family unit is under attack, is being destroyed. And we as a church are falling into the same cultural pressures in terms of men's and women's roles and where marriage fits in and all sorts of things. And so uh, widows are a big conversation in this, how to treat them and deal with them. And slaves, now, uh, again, remember in their context, slaves would often live within the homes. 
So they would you know, work for, like you think of, uh, they would work within a family unit and be sort of structured within the family unit. So again, there's some instruction to them in terms of their roles within that whole society. So again, huge, uh, huge, uh, interesting conversations we're going to have at Genesis House. And finally, Timothy to be a living example. In chapter 4, verses 12, Paul says this to him, Timothy, show yourself as an example. Show yourself as that way. And then he, he lays it out, both in word and deed. You know, I, um, I'll actually read this, it's really cool. He says here, um, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, and faith and purity, show yourself as an example of those who believe. Until I come, listen to the words here, give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation and teaching. In other words, preach the gospel truth from the front and get it out there <laughs> to the masses. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of my hands. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Now watch this, pay, cleanse, pay attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. So again, his words and his deed were evident, and he was to be a living example amongst the Ephesians. That makes total sense. If you're going to try to bring change to a church, you have to model what you preach and say, or preach and do. Otherwise, it's just pure hypocrisy. So I'm going to conclude with one final thought. And uh, I know this is going to be very interesting for you. It was interesting for me, still is. It has to do with how to interpret Timothy correctly. So here's where the churches get divided. And here's where you and I will have disagreements and agreements. We have to decide as a church, when is the teaching in Timothy cultural? In other words, it's just an issue for them and their churches to then that don't apply to our church today versus principally based. A, a thing that was occurring in their church that is now true for all time. It's a timeless truth. Now the reason it's important is that this is where the great divide occurs in churches and in denominations and even within individual believers in regards to how to apply Timothy to, to church life. I'll give you an example. All right? I want you all to turn to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I'm going to ask you a question. And I, I don't care what you do with your hands in terms of, like, like make a commitment one way or the other, and I don't care what the answer is. Because to be honest with you, I might change my belief as we study this more. But by a show of hands, I'm going to read you 2.8. I want you to answer this question. Um, uh, okay. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissensions. Those of you who think it's a timeless principle, raise up your hand. Okay, those who think it's cultural. Oh, you chickens. Two people put up their hands. I'm not even going to count. I don't care if you're right or wrong. I'm going to try that again. Everyone has to commit. I don't care what your answer is, because I might change my opinion after I read this. Therefore, I want every man to lift up their holy hands without wrath and dissension. Cultural belief, only for them. Okay, anybody for timeless principle? Okay, yeah, like timeless principle, okay. If that's the case, the majority said timeless principle. We got a problem in Genesis house, don't we? 
If it's timeless, we've got a problem with Dennis's house. How many of you have ever lifted your hands for anything in the church? <laughs> Besides asking me a question and challenging me, right? Right? I have never seen any of you guys lift your hands in prayer. But is that how your heart Huh? Okay, so maybe once. Okay, here's the point. Isn't it going to be a fun conversation? Okay? Here's a question I'm going to ask you. How did you come to that conclusion, whether it was timeless or, or, true for, or cultural? What made you decide? Here's why I ask. Look at verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair. Okay. Any of you, how many of you think, culturally, that if you... Okay, how many think that if you braid your hair today, you're, you're in disobedience to God if you come to church? Raise your hands. Nobody? How many think it's a cultural issue? Everybody. Here's a question. How did you date a distinction? How come you were willing to say that lifting up your hands in prayer was timeless, but then one verse later made braided hair cultural? How did you make that slip in the switch? No, I don't. I'm just asking you, but we can discuss it in dialogue. But for you to, to make that distinction is very interesting. He just gave an instruction to women, an instruction to men. One was timeless for you and one wasn't. I'm just like, like, like that, you know, that's very interesting. So we have to discuss this. Here's why that matters. I'm going to read you verse 12. <laughs> a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men but to remain quiet. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this one right now. Uh, I know we're going to get into it. But here's the point. If you say cultural, how did you come to that conclusion versus timeless? How did you come to that conclusion? Especially, if you, especially for those of you who think that's a timeless principle, um, but then would have thought that maybe uh, braided hair was cultural. I mean, that's, these are really important questions, but honestly, it divides denominations. They exist because they cannot, they argue over these verses. And so at Genesis House, we have to come to grips with these. And every time I study this verse, these verses, I have more questions than answers. And so I could see myself even potentially uh, changing some things in my own theology as we dig into these more. And in one way, I'm looking forward to those verses, and one way I'm scared out of my tree because I know I'm accountable to God for the truth. But the good thing is you are too, and so, you know, uh, we'll see where we go with that one, okay? So, um, that's, that's really the crux of First Timothy. What, like that, for me, that's a big thing. And that's, why that's important is we're going to come into widows. Here's how you take care of widows. Timeless? Or is that cultural? You know, and uh, again, all these women's issues and... Uh, and men's issues within the church and, and family and whatnot. Okay, so uh, here's what I, I'm going to end with. Uh, going to end with. Uh, these aren't, I, I, I did put lessons down, but they're actually uh, maybe more principled. Oh, yeah, well, these are, could be lessons then. These are lessons or things to think about. Um, I think that right off the cuff without getting into the book in detail, one thing we can learn from Ephesus, if one's not careful, a church that starts off strong and faithful can end up sideways very quickly without solid leadership in place. That is absolutely critical from Timothy. All the apostasy verses, all of it, was because they had bad teachers. And, or, and, the, and the once, but once were strong teachers and maybe and had truth to them, 
but that just something happens in the church and they went sideways. So it's important to pay attention to strong leadership. I can go back to these if, you, if you're slow to write them down and uh, later on. Lesson two. There are certain roles and structures within the church as well as family that God wants us to protect. I should have said certain roles of men and women. But there are certain roles for men and women and structures within the church as, as well as family that God wants us to protect. He makes a clear distinction in the letter all the way through what he wants men to do versus what he wants women to do. And again, we have to see why is he saying those things in this letter more than any other letter. Again, there's something going on in Ephesus that's not going any, on anywhere else to the same degree in the New Testament churches. So I'd insert men's and women's roles there. I forgot to add those words. Uh, lesson three. We have to be careful in regards to materialism. Uh, the motivating factor for the false teachers, how this whole thing got started, was, was, was greed. We see an emphasis on materialism with the women uh, and the braided hair. Right? I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold or jewelry, but rather by means of good works. So again, there's something going on in the church where there's an affluence of wealth within the female culture, and they're flaunting it in the churches. It's a, it's a big issue in Ephesus, big issue in Okotoks. I don't have to tell you twice. Okay? And I think another one uh, would be this one. Leadership, the leadership are to live as examples within the church community. Right? An emphasis on character, not duty. And um, Timothy is being an example of good doctrine and good character. Alright. I've said a lot. And I've uh, said a lot, yet I've said a little, because I haven't even opened those issues up. Yeah. If I opened them up, I'd end up doing what Paul did to that one poor guy who fell out the window and died. You guys, after a while, I'd be so tired of listening, you'd, be, you'd fall over and that'd be the end of you.